Well, amen. If you have your Bibles, you're turning to Luke 10. Luke 10, as we turn to the teaching of, our, of the Word of God today. Luke 10. We have been this month of missions walking through the first 20 verses of Luke 10. And uh, if you have been with us, you know we have learned from this passage. This is a passage in which Jesus uh, commissions. He has 70 people, or 72. There's a textual variance, but he has 70 people, and he sends them out. It amounts to kind of a short-term mission project. He sends them out ahead of him, and he tells them to uh, announce that the kingdom of God has come to heal the sick. He sends them out. He gives them some instructions. We learned about those instructions. He warned them about the difficulty they were going to face. He warned them that they were going to face rejection, and he talked to them about how to handle rejection. And now we come to verse 17, and on this Sunday, if you're watching this later online. This is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So on this Sunday uh, before Thanksgiving, I think it's appropriate to look at this passage, verses 17 through 20, after they have gone out. Again, I think this is a fairly short amount of time, days or weeks. They now return back and we read about their report. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 10 says this, the 70 returned with joy. That's really the key phrase today. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall like heaven or fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will ever harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus sent 70 people out, and he sent them out on what can only be described as a difficult mission. If you were with us and read through these early verses, you know it was a tough vision. Uh, It was a difficult mission. He sent them out and said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves in verse 3. Now, just think about that. If you're a lamb, you typically don't go among wolves. It's a dangerous mission. It It was a difficult mission because he sent them out and said, don't take any extra clothes. Don't take any extra money. You just trust me as you go. So it was a difficult, an arduous mission. And it was risky. He said, you're going to deal with rejection. So when you go, you just need to understand you're going to deal with rejection. Here's how to handle rejection. And yet he sent them out. And when they came back, the Bible says they were filled with joy. And that intrigues me. In fact, I think if I were retitling this message again, sometimes I think through things as we get closer to Sunday, I think I would call this unexpected joy. Because the Bible says they come back with great joy. And you wouldn't think that if people have gone on a hard mission, a risky mission, a sacrificial mission, a difficult mission, that the result of that is joy. No, what we tend to do if we want joy is we go to Disney World. And I'm all for going to Disney World. Especially if you have grandkids, you want to go to Disney World every now and again. But we go to places like that, we spend billions of dollars to entertain ourselves. 
In America, we spend billions of dollars on movies and music and sports and all kinds of things, which, when you think about it, are all means for entertainment. And yet, in a recent survey that I read this week, less than one in three Americans claim to be very happy. When asked to describe their emotional state, only 31% said they were very happy. And that number was decreasing from previous years. Which begs the question, when we're spending billions of dollars to entertain ourselves, when we have gadgets and gadgets and widgets, which are supposed to make life easy and supposed to provide entertainment like no generation has ever known, why are less than one in three people in America full of real joy? Maybe it's because the joy doesn't come from the expected places. It usually rises up from unexpected places. Seventy people returned with great joy from a dangerous, sacrificial, risky, difficult mission. Maybe that's because real joy is found in something other than making our life easy and convenient. In fact, this morning as we think about the mission that God sent these on, I want to point out three things about how to have real joy or how to find joy in unexpected places. The holiday season is a time we talk a lot about joy. We sing songs about joy, but for a lot of people, it's a time of sadness and depression, usually because the reality doesn't live up to our expectations. Let me tell you where the real joy is. You're going to find it often in unexpected places. Real joy is found, number one, in finding God's purpose, in finding God's purpose. The disciples return from this mission with great joy, perhaps because it was a mission that had real meaning. I think, here's what I, I, most of us think that the enemy of joy is difficulty. So this is what we do as we get older, particularly men as we get older, and I suppose women too. Here's what we try to do. We try to make our lives easier. The more affluence we have, the more control we have, because when you're young, you're like, things are out of control, right? So the older you get, the more you have a little control over things, right? So what you do with that control, with that money, here's what you try to do. You try to make your life easier. You try to take hard things out of your life And you want to live life easy, convenient, free from pain, minimizing danger, minimizing risk, because we think that's what will make us happy. The reality is, these men who embraced danger, who embraced sacrifice, and embraced risk, they actually were full of joy. Maybe it's because... The greatest enemy of joy is not difficulty. I really think one of the greatest enemies of joy is boredom. One of the greatest enemies of joy is boredom. You put somebody in a place with no risk, no challenge, no danger, boring. Who wants to read a book where the hero has no risk, no danger, no difficulty? That makes for a boring movie, a boring book. You want to be full of joy? Find a purpose bigger than you are. You probably have heard the study of, um, lots of preachers and writers have referred to this, where a guy did an experiment with rats. He put rats in a cage. You've heard this study. And they had two levers. One lever was for food and water. 
The other lever is for morphine. They would become high. And what they found is that the rats, sadly, would go to the morphine lever, which activates the pleasure centers of the brain, and they would go back to it over and over again until they would pass out from exhaustion and even starve themselves to death. They would become so addicted, they would destroy their lives, which is a sad conclusion and a mirror of what many people do in humanity. Well, there was a Canadian researcher who had heard that and had read about that. His name was Bruce Alexander. And he thought to himself that maybe one of the reasons the rats got addicted to morphine was maybe they were bored. He said, quote, if I was stuck in a cage with nothing to do, I'd get high too. I didn't say that. He did. So this man decided to do another experiment. He built an elaborate rat park. I mean, it was large, intricate, brightly painted, heavily padded with lots of rats to let rats do what rats like to do. They had room to socialize. They had rooms to to, to mate, to have families, to make friends, to have little rat parties, whatever rats do when they hang out and have a good time. He put half the rats in a normal cage, giving them access to food and water and morphine, and he put another half of the rats in a large, elaborate rat park. What he discovered was that the rats in the cage got addicted while the rats in the park stayed away. Specifically, even the rats in the park that got addicted to the morphine He left them in there 57 days when he took those rats out after they had already been addicted and put them in the rat park. Many of them who had been addicted suddenly stayed away from the drugs. They went through voluntary detox. His conclusion is that when our lives are filled with beauty and purpose, we are able to resist the things that destroy us. Now, that illustration needs a spiritual component to be sure, but I think there is amazing truth there. And that is that when our lives are empty and devoid of a great meaning and a great purpose and a great challenge, we tend to drift toward the baser elements, to things that give us a temporary high that inevitably become things that are very destructive in our life. But when our lives are full of meaning and challenge and beauty and purpose, it is far easier to say no to those things which would destroy us. We spend billions of dollars to amuse ourselves. Do you know what the word amusement means? We go to amusement parks. The word amusement means to divert from serious business, end quote. The primary meaning when it first arose in the 16th and 17th century was to deceive or cheat someone by first occupying their attention. You would amuse somebody by distracting them in order to deceive or cheat them. I'm all for going to the amusement park. I'm all for buying the mouse ears. But I'm telling you, if you think that entertainment or amusement is going to fill your life with joy, you are flat out wrong. You're going to come home bored and broke. The Scientific American said, 
easily, and I'm quoting, easily bored people are at higher risk for depression, anxiety, drug addiction, alcoholism, gambling, eating disorders, hostility, anger, poor social skills, bad grade, and low work performance. Just about everything but bad breath. So you want to know what the antidote to boredom is? Significance. Meaning. Do something that has purpose. And of course, following Christ and serving him is the greatest purpose of all. So let me give you a specific prescription for dealing with your boredom. Go on a mission trip. Take this little insert and really look at it. Instead of taking a year or a week next year, spending thousands of dollars to amuse yourself somewhere. And listen, I get everyone needs a vacation. I take time. Everybody needs to. I understand. I get that. But, but can I tell you, instead of spending your priority to amuse yourself and entertain yourself, what if you took a week and said, let me take on a big challenge. Let me make a sacrifice. Let me risk. Let me get out on the edge. That, that's why we do these trips. So, do you like to build stuff, fix stuff? We've got trips going to Brazil. We've got five trips next year going to Brazil. Guatemala, where our team just got back last night. You, you, are you interested in children's ministry like VBS, camps, evangelism? We've got trips to Uganda, Brazil, Guatemala, Russia, Mozambique next year. Interested in church planning or training leaders? We can use you in Uganda, Mozambique, Brazil, Guatemala, India, Russia, Thailand. Interested in medical missions like our team that got back last night from Guatemala? We'll be sending teams to Guatemala, Brazil, Mozambique. Let me just challenge you. I dare you. Instead of taking a week to amuse yourself, take a week and go somewhere in a different cultural context and see what happens. Whenever I get somebody, and this happens from time to time, whenever I get somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor, why do we spend all that money? Why do we get people raising all this money and they go on mission trips? Is that really, what is, is that doing any good? I was like, can't we just, wouldn't it be better just to send that money ahead and we send lots of money ahead? But wouldn't it just be good to send it all? Like, why, why, do, why do we even send people? Whenever somebody says that to me, I have a stock answer. I go, oh, so you've never been, have you? And they'll go, well, well, how'd you know that? I go, because if you had been, you wouldn't ask that question. I just, I've, I've never had anybody that actually went that ever wondered why we send people. If, if you want to know, go into the lobby after I'm done preaching in a minute, find the people who got back at 1030 last night. They're tired. They're jet lagged. They've been eating weird food. Go talk to them tonight, this morning. And you know what you're going to find? They are full of great joy. Because they just spent a week with people who couldn't afford doctors or dental care, ministering to physical needs, and were able to lead over 230 people to faith in Christ. They are full of great joy this morning. Listen, you get a big purpose. You get a big purpose, you find joy. That's true all the way through life. Vince Lombardi said, meaningful work creates morale. Meaningful work creates morale. It's my favorite Lombardi quote. Do something hard, not easy. Take a risk. Don't play it safe. Do something big, not something small. Find great joy. Number two, 
witness God's power. Very quickly, and I, I wish I had lots of time to dig into this, but look at, look at, at when they come back. This is really cool. The 70 return with joy. Are you look at verse 17. They come back, and here's their response. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, now here's what's interesting. They seem genuinely surprised by that, don't they? Even the demons. When you look at Jesus' instruction to these 70, it, he said nothing about casting out demons. Might, might not be significant, but it might be. He, he specifically told them to go announce that the kingdom of God was there and to heal the sick. That's what he gifted them to do, sent them out. Now, in chapter 9, when he sent the 12 out, he did mention healing and casting out demons. So he sends these 70 out, and they come back. And, and the way I'm, I read this is this. They are genuinely stunned. They went out with a specific commission from the Lord. They didn't go out intending to do this. This, isn't, they didn't, they, this wasn't some sensationalistic show. They weren't, they weren't playing games with people. They went out to announce the gospel, to use the gifts that God had given them to heal people. They went out and they were stunned to find that as they went out preaching the gospel and doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, this is, they, did not, they weren't getting all focused on demons. They weren't like trying to talk to demons. They just went out and did what Jesus told them to do. And as they went out and did exactly what Jesus told them to do, wow, even the demons submitted to them. They were the most surprised. They came back it's like they come back to Jesus. Can you believe it? Can you say to Jesus, can you believe that? Of course he knows it. But he comes, they're like, we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. We went out and did what you told us to do. And we saw demonic power in people's lives broken. I mean, we saw people we couldn't explain the, the bondage they were under. And as we just came, wasn't, they didn't have anything. It was in the name of Jesus. We, even the demons submitted to us. They're blown away by it. They, they saw God do something. They They'd never seen before. And then notice what Jesus says to them in verse 8. I watched, verse 18, I watched Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is that talking about? Well, a lot of scholars have written about this. Some think Jesus is talking about when Satan first fell from heaven. That doesn't make any sense. That had been long ago. Some people think he's talking about in the end times when, when he's finally defeated. Well, that doesn't make any sense. He's talking about what he just saw. I think think what he's saying is this. As you guys went out and you preached the gospel and you did what I told you to do, you went out there. You know what I saw? Jesus saw something in the spiritual realm. He said, I saw Satan fall like heaven from lightning. Now, how does lightning fall from heaven? It's a metaphor. It's not saying Satan was in heaven. He's saying, I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? Well, how does lightning fall from heaven? Boom, right? Fast, like it's over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not little by, it's not incremental. It's like, pow, he fell. Jesus says, you guys went out there. You went out in my name. You did what I told you to do. You preached, you prayed over people, and they were healed. And God, he said, let me tell you what I saw. Let me tell you what I saw. I saw Satan, and he had his, he, I saw, you went in that village, and you preached, and that, that young person, that 14-year-old got saved. You know what I saw when that 14-year-old boy got saved? I saw, boom, Satan just lost him. He had his grips on him, and boom, he just fell from heaven. He lost his power. Because you went out and did what I told you to do. Folks, that's what 
Missions is. That's what evangel. You know what missions is? Missions is rescuing people from the grasp of demons. That's what missions is. It's rescuing people from the grasp of demons. We are the instruments of the Lord by which the power of darkness is crushed. God works through us. And if you want to see God do something big, then go do something big for God. You're not going to see God's power working in your life, sitting on your recliner. You're not going to see God show up in your life and do amazing things until you get out there where he can do amazing things. Some of you got, I don't know how to go on a mission trip. I don't know where the money's coming from. You're never going to know where the money's coming from until you get out there and trust God to do it. You're going, I don't, I don't know what I'd do if I got out there. I don't know what I'd say if I was asked to stand up and give my testimony. You'll never know until you go and when you go and the living God shows up and does through you more than you could ever dream he would do through you, you too will come back full of joy that you got to see the power of God. John MacArthur, then one other thing, and I'll give you a quick little John MacArthur outline. He says, then in verse 19, he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will ever harm you. Well, that's a hard verse to understand because we know there are Christians who have been hurt, right? We know that. And what's the deal about snakes and scorpions? Like, yuck, right? So, um, like some of you are going, okay, is this where they pull out the snakes? Well, if they do, you're going to have to beat me out the door because I'm, I'm out of here, okay? I mean, if you read this verse and go home and grab a snake, that one's on you, people. I, I, okay, nothing to do with that. There are passages. There's a passage in Mark where there's a lot to that one, but there's a passage in Mark where Jesus talks about, hey, picking up snakes and not, not being harmed. There is a story in the book of Acts where Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake and he survived. So one way of looking at this is that when you go in the name of Jesus, God will work supernaturally, whatever he has to do to make sure the message gets out there. And I I think certainly that's true. Nothing is going to stop the gospel. I think the best way to read this snake and scorpion part is that it is a picture of Satan and the demons. That's what makes sense in the text. He has been talking about Satan, who we know, seen as a serpent. He has been talking about demons who are sometimes described as being like scorpions. I I think what Jesus is saying here, and it's, 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 it's even bigger than dealing with snakes and scorpions, what he's saying is that the demons... And Satan, demonic powers, cannot harm you. They cannot stop you. And this is what every Christian knows. Nothing can happen to me that doesn't come through the providential watch of my heavenly Father. That doesn't mean that Christians haven't endured difficult times and even been killed. They have. But here's what I know. Nothing can touch me without coming through my heavenly Father first. You say, well, I I don't... It always amuses me, by the way... I think I'll just go on a tangent for a second. It always amuses me, parents who go, they'll bring their children for Mother's Day, when we do Mother's Day baby dedications, and they bring their children, and they dedicate them to the Lord. That's what they say, with a straight face. With a straight face. We dedicate them, we're giving them to the Lord. Now they're teenagers, they say, let's go on a mission trip. Oh, that's a little risky, Pastor. I don't know, I, you know, that's a risky, I'm, I'm worried about that. Whoa, 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 time out. 
I thought 16 years ago you gave them to the Lord. Did you take them back? Look, I, I'm not, we, we don't do reckless and irresponsible things here. But I'm just going to tell you, if you want to spend your life playing it safe, you're not going to see the power of God. You, you, you have to do some difficult things. You've got to take some huge challenges. You've got to take some risk. But that's where God shows up. They had joy because they found God's purpose. They witnessed God's power. Let me give you the last one. They, what, what, I, they, what I started to give you, I don't know if you saw. They enjoyed divine power over demons. They enjoyed divine power over darkness. The demons were subject to them. And they enjoyed divine protection over darkness. Divine power, divine protection as you go in the name of Jesus. Now, here's the last word. Here's the last word. They found God's power. Uh, they found God's purpose. They witnessed God's power. And then they rested in God's promise. Great joy comes from resting in God's promise. Look at verse 20. Jesus says to them, however, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Now, I don't think he's rebuking them for finding joy in that. Because he rejoiced with them according to verse 21. He rejoiced. Verse 21 is great. We didn't have time to get to it. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and praised you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there in verse 21. And Jesus is full of joy for them. So I don't think he's rebuking them for being full of joy because God had worked through them. But here's what he says at the end of verse 20. Don't rejoice that the spirits are submitting. That, that's a great, you know, that, but your best, your greatest reason for joy is this one. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that God's using you. Rejoice that you've seen God work. That, that, I mean, tell you, if you ever see it, you ever experience it, you'll have great joy. I promise you, you have great joy. But the greatest source of joy is this, that Jesus saved you, that he wrote your name. Now, notice what he said, that rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What does that mean, written in heaven? In the Jewish towns, they would have a registry. We have it today. It's just different formats. But they had a registry, and the names of the people who were citizens of the town, citizens of the city, were written in the book. They were written. Their names were in the book. There's a book of heaven. And the names of those who have been born into heaven, their names are written on that book. It's talked about in the Bible. I had a preacher one time. I heard him preach. As a boy, I heard him preach the sermon. This was his sermon. The most important book in the Bible. He said, come tonight. I'm going to tell you the most important book in the Bible. Everybody's curious. They wanted to win the Bible trivia competition, so they all showed up. Most important book in the Bible. And he started, he said, I'm going to tell you the most important book of the Bible. And he started with Genesis. He said, Genesis is a very important book, you know, da, da, da. but it's not the most important book in the Bible. And then he went to Exodus. And he said, now, Exodus is a very important book. It talks about God's people delivered out of Egypt. And without the book of Exodus, it's a picture of Christ to come. And it's a, but it's not the most important book in the Bible. And he, he literally went through the Bible, which, fortunately for you, I'm not going to do right now. But he didn't. <laughs> He got to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the biographies of Jesus, this, and this is how we learn about you. How would we know about Christ, the cross, if it weren't for the biographies of Jesus? But that is not the most important book in the Bible. And he went all the way through. He got to Revelation. He got to Revelation. He said, all right, how many of you knew Revelation was the most important? And, of course, everybody raised their hand. He said, wrong. 
And he said, the book of Revelation is a great book, and it's very important. It tells us that Christ will triumph in the end, and it's, it's, uh, every book is inspired of God, placed there in the sovereignty of God for us to know the truth about God. He said, but every book is there because of the book that's the most important book in the Bible. And he turned to Revelation 20, verse 11, and he read this. It's a picture of the end of the age. John writes, I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. That's God on his throne. Heaven and earth fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. In other words, everyone who had ever died, everyone who had ever lived or died was standing there. And the books, now that's plural, the books were open. There's a lot of books. You know what's in that book? Everything you've ever done. Everything you've ever done in that book, everything you've ever said, every mistake you've ever made, every sin you've ever committed, it is all written down. God knows it. But there's another book. It says... Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books, plural. The sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Preacher said, The book of life. That's the most important book in the Bible. Because every other book is given to you so that your name can be written in the book of life. God knows everything you've ever done, everything I've ever done. He knows all our mistakes and all of our sins. And here, do you know what the message of the Bible is? You've messed up, and so have I. You, you, you tend to judge yourself just like I do by other people, and we tend to feel pretty good about ourselves. But God doesn't grade on a curve. The reality is none of us bat a thousand. We, the Bible says, have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. When it talks about the books were open, there's some nasty stuff in those books. I really don't want to read what's in that book. But praise God, there's another book, the book of life. Because the Bible says that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross in our place for our sin. He took all of our guilt and he sacrificed himself on our behalf and he was buried and Jesus Christ rose again the third day and he reigns in heaven and will one day return. And this is what the Bible says, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So that when I admit my sin and I ask God to forgive me of my sin and by placing my faith, my confidence, my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to save me, The Bible says it's as if in that moment I am justified before God. I am made right before God. He takes my name and he writes it in a book. The book of life. So I have one question. This is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Everyone here knows that if you're watching online. I don't know when you're watching this. Here's what I want to ask you. Is your name in the book? There's a book in heaven. Yes, it's a literal book. You could open it up and read the names that are written in the book of life. So here's my question. If we could get that book right here, Clearwater, Florida, and open it up today, is your name in the book?
Is your name in there? Have you ever been forgiven for your sin, placed your faith in Christ, known that he saved you? I didn't, you say, well, don't, don't, well, I hope so, I think so. I was like, I'm not asking you what you're hoping in. I'm not asking you what you're working on. No, no, well, I'm working on. I'm not, I'm not interested in what you're working on. That's, an, that's another question. I'm not, we're, we're, I want to know just one thing. Not what you're working on, not what you're hoping in, not what you wish. Here's what I want to know. I want to know, is your name in the book? That's what I want to know. Is your name in that book today? Because the day will come when you will stand before God, and so will I. And there's one of two books. One book that says, this is all the stuff I've done. Or there's another book that says, I am forgiven. I have been redeemed. I am saved through Jesus Christ. My name's in that book. Now listen. You want your name in that book, the book of life. Have you ever... Let Jesus Christ write your name in that book because if you do, that is the greatest reason for joy. If you understood what that means, what God saves you from and what he promises for your future, it trumps everything else and it is the source of all of our joys. I want you to pray with me this morning. Every head's bowed and your eyes closed. I want to ask you a question. I'm this a little different than I do Sunday by Sunday, so listen very, very close. Is your name written in that book today? Because you will stand before that throne one day, and so will I. I'm asking, is your name in the book? As we're just praying, heads bowed, eyes closed, and this isn't online, this isn't on the Internet, they're, they're zooming right in on me. This isn't a crowd shot, it's just zooming right in on me. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. Is your name in that book? How many of you sitting here today with heads bowed, eyes closed would say, Pastor, I know, not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it. I know that by God's grace, he's written my name in that book. Would you just raise your hand, lift it up right down. I believe with all my heart, my name's in that book. Thank you. Just put your hand up now. Now, if you couldn't raise your hand then, because maybe you didn't know or whatever, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I just I want to ask you, would you like to know? Would you like to be in that book? Would you like to know that God has forgiven you? Put your name in the book of life. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just, will forgive us. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, you will be rescued, saved. If you've never prayed that prayer, asking Christ to forgive you, maybe this morning, even today, You'd like to do that. You didn't raise your hand a moment ago. You don't know, but maybe you would cry out to the Lord today. Lord God, I believe that you are real, and I admit that I have sinned against you. Lord, you know my sins. And I believe that Jesus Christ came and died in my place on the cross, that he was buried and raised from the dead, and he is the Lord of all. And today, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to clean me and make me your child. Write my name in your book. I want to follow you and I want to serve you from now on. And if you prayed that prayer today or you'd like to talk to somebody about what that means, when this service is over, we'll have pastors right here at the front. As others are leaving, there'll be pastors here at the front. Some of our pastors here, make make sure we have enough pastors here at the front. You'll come.
They'll be here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you, answer a question. Come tell one of these pastors. I prayed that prayer with Pastor Willie. My name's in the book. Lord God, thank you for the joy that comes from you. You're the source of all of our joy, not our amusements, our entertainments. Those are blessings in their place. But you are the source of all joy. May we find our joy in your purpose. May we find our joy by witnessing your power. May we find our joy resting in your promise that you have saved us and we are yours. For this is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grave could not ignore it when all of heaven's roaring. Hell, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The world could not ignore when all the saints are roaring. Hell, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? today and as always some of our staffs down front happy to talk or pray with you yet this morning we hope you'll be back tonight for a great time as we gather around the lord's supper and uh, so we will see you tonight at six bye